Let's open the Bible. Let's open up to first. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at Joshua 20 and 21, but before we get into Joshua chapter 20, I'd like for us to start in Numbers chapter 35, beginning in verse 9. If you remember where we're at in the book of Joshua now, the battles, the big battles have been accomplished, and the land has been um, part, partitioned out to each of the different tribes. <clears throat> the land has been partitioned out to the different tribes, and uh, and it's a great time for them because now that you know the the you know what it's like having um, having a big battle and and having a lot of stress, and then finally for there to be a release of that stress, uh, whether it's uh, you know waiting for a job promotion and. Or maybe even getting a job that you've always desired, and there's the interviews, and then there's the what-ifs, and you're, you're supposed to get a phone call, and you don't get the phone call, and they say they'll call on Monday at noon, and Monday at noon comes and goes, and it's just this constant suspension, and you just feel like you just want to exhale. That, that's what this was like for the children of Israel. They had gone through these battles, and, um, and God was very faithful to them, and he provided them the land. And so we get through this partitioning, of the land, and God begins to uh, give them some of the civil government, governmental kind of things, the civil um, codes, the laws, and the ordinances. And, and I love this about God. He didn't just give them the land and, and say, here's the land, uh, feel free to move about the cabin, uh, see ya. <laughs> he didn't do that. He gave them very specific instructions. He gave them laws and ordinances and codes and all of this was to do what? It was to glorify him. And because a society that doesn't have any rules and regulations is a, is a society that's, that's going to shut down very quickly because, there's, because lawlessness will abound. And so God in his all-knowingness and his omniscience, he knows the heart of man. And he knows that if he doesn't put things in place, uh, man at his best will end up killing themselves. And, and and so God institutes these things. And incidentally, a lot of these things that we're looking at tonight, um, and even in the law of God, in the first five books, you know, Exodus, and Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these laws are, they have, they've affected our laws in this country. A lot of these laws, m most everything we get from our, our penal codes and our laws come from the Bible. Whether they will admit to it or not, it's all there. And tonight is no different. So there's only nine verses in chapter 20, and it talks about these cities of refuge. A city of refuge was someone where someone could go if they inadvertently had killed somebody. We would call it today involuntary manslaughter. But since uh, chapter 20 has very little in it, let's go right back to the very beginning when God spoke this to Moses and just read it because I think it has a more complete uh, narrative for us to understand really what this was all about and why it was, and even give some examples, which I think are, is really awesome. So let's just read it. Verse 9 of Numbers chapter 35, it says then, and remember Moses at this time, uh, when we're, as we're reading Numbers, he's alive and he, they are at the, um, on the other side, on the eastern side of the Jordan River before they crossed over. And so the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person, notice, and you might want to underline this, accidentally may flee there. 
There shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until, notice two things, he stands before the congregation in judgment. And, and actually, the, the, other, the second thing will be coming later. I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. And the cities, verse 13, which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, which is, in this, in this time frame, he's talking about the east side of the Jordan, right? Um, which is, uh, if you're looking at a map, um, it would be on the, on the, on the uh, right side there, on the eastern side. And so you shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan and three cities which you shall appoint in the land of Canaan. And that would be once they cross over the Jordan and conquer Jericho, etc., they would um, actually set up three more cities, which will be cities of refuge. Verse 15, these six cities will be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person, notice, accidentally may flee there. But if he strikes him with an iron, and I love this, God gives uh, um, examples so we understand what involuntary manslaughter is. <laughs> he says, but if he strikes him with an iron implement, or, or a, a, actually just a cold-blooded murder, he, he differentiates those two right here. But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer. And the murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he strikes him with a stone in the hand by which one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death, or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which he could, one could die, and he does die, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death, and when he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him out of hatred or while lying in wait hurls something at him so that he dies or in enmity he strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall be put, shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So this is speaking of voluntary murder, just cold-blooded murder. You know, when somebody raises a, you know, a, a wood, like a, a small baseball bat or something like that, and they're, they're hitting somebody, and they, maybe they didn't mean to kill them, but they're hitting them with it, which means the intention is there, and the lethalness of that blow could very easily take a life. And so God says that if that occurs, then he is a murderer. But notice, however, if he pushes him suddenly without enmity. In other words, if he pushes him uh, for some reason or throws anything at him without lying in wait, in other words, it wasn't premeditated, or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him so that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm, then <coughs> excuse me, the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. And can you see just the, 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 the code that God is setting up so that the cold-blooded murderers are killed by the next in line, the next, uh, we'll, we'll look at that, the avenger of blood, who that is. It's a go well. We'll look at that uh, shortly. But God puts this in place. And for those who inadvertently uh, kill somebody, you know, you could be out hunting. You know, this would be another good example in our day. You know, you're out hunting and you know, you're not obeying the laws, and you're not supposed to shoot an animal on, on, the, on the horizon where you can't see on the other side of the hill, but you shoot it anyway, you miss, and it goes over and hits another hunter that he dies. You didn't hate the hunter. You didn't know he was there. You didn't assume anybody was there, but you killed him by accident. 
uh, in a situation like that, that would be involuntary manslaughter, right? And so God says, you shall not be put to death for that. You may go to jail. Uh, you, may, you may get your license revoked, and um, the family of the person who's killed is going to be very angry with you, but it's not worthy of death. So it says, however, uh, I, I read that. So, so verse 25, so the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. The manslayer is the one who did the accident. The avenger of blood is somebody uh, in the family, usually a male, the oldest male in the family, would normally come after the person who killed somebody in their family. Does that make sense? It's kind of like the same thing you see today. You know, if, 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 my, if somebody was to kill me, you know, my brother would come after them. You know, uh, he would want to do that. Of course, he's a, he's a major in the Lee County Sheriff's Department, so he'd probably do it lawfully. I don't know. But anyway, so the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him, notice, to the city of, his, of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there, notice, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. So if it was really involuntary manslaughter, a city of refuge would be a city, and there's six of them, and we'll look at them. In fact, um, you can see on the screen right now there's, there, there, there were six different places. One was on the, uh, three of them were on the east coast of the, of the Jordan River. Uh, Bezir down in the south, uh, Ramoth Gilead in the, in the center part, and then Golan in the north part just uh, immediately to the, the east of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Kedish uh, up above that on, on the west side of the Jordan River, and then Shechem down in the center of the land of Canaan, and then Hebron down uh, right about the middle of the Dead Sea on the west side. And so they would, um, they, they would flee to one of these cities. And it says, because he should have remained in a city. So if a manslayer uh, goes to one of these cities and it's involuntary, he's supposed to, to go in and get judgment. The members of that city would listen to his case. And if indeed he was, it was involuntary and he didn't hate anybody before, and it was just an accident, they'll be able to determine that. However, he's supposed to stay in the walls of that city until the death of the high priest. And that may be years. And so in order for him to be protected, he's got to stay within those walls. If at any time he leaves those walls, the avenger of blood, who's probably looking out, seeing if he comes outside the walls. If he kills him and finds him outside the city gates and he kills him, he will not be held guilty for his blood. And so, because he should have remained, verse 28, in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after, notice, the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person... The murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. Why do you think we have juries? Why do you think you get called to jury duty that everybody loves to do? You go to jury duty for this very reason. No one will be put to death or put to, um, to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. In other words, you, can't, you shouldn't take bribes but he shall surely be put to death, and you shall not 
Take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who who has shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel." So I think that gives us a pretty good understanding of what these cities of refuge are. So let's actually go back into Joshua chapter 20. And before we um, actually read this, and it's only nine verses, and again, I think what we just read is more of a complete statement about what the cities of refuge are. And I think you're going to find it interesting what, um, how Jesus is our, um, he is our high priest. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that. But before we do, I want to share with you, you know, God cares about life, and he cares about justice. You know, we live in a time today where justice can often be skewed. Sometimes we, we see uh, dirty judges and uh, people who accept bribes, and, and, and we get a little jaded by seeing the, the justice department or the justice system um, it's very hard sometimes to, uh, to see that, but God, he cares about life. In fact, in Leviticus, he says, choose life. He says, I put before you life and death. And I believe he would say it to America today. I put before you life and death. Now choose life. Choose life in every facet and every meaning of the word life. Choose life, not death. And that, that doesn't just mean abortion. You know, that's certainly a, a, a hot topic today. Choose life. But not only don't do those things, but choose life. Choose who is the life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. So choose Christ. And when you choose Christ, basically what you're doing is when you sign on the paper and giving your heart to him, you're basically saying, oh, Lord, I want to live a life. That is your life living in and through me. I want to listen to what you show me in your word, and I want to appropriate it into my own life. I don't want it just to go in one ear and then out the other. It must be something that we take in and we do something with it. Otherwise, the Bible says that if we're hearers only and not doers of the word, what, we, what do we do? We deceive ourselves. Because then we think we're good. And then we think we're okay, when in actuality we're not. And the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they fell into that very same thing. They thought that they were good because they went through all the motions. They had all the laws memorized. And yet, you, you know, they, they, they tripped over the very things that they were guilty of because they justified themselves and they thought that everything was about somebody else and never for them, and their hearts got corrupted. So it's important to God about justice, and that's why we see him putting these six cities kind of equidistantly all throughout the land of Canaan to make provision for somebody who killed somebody, whether on purpose or on accident, there would be a tribunal. You know, there would be a, a, a court, in a sense, as they stood before the congregations of these, of these different places. They would make judgment. And if they were good and, and everything was good, then they lived, but they had to stay within the walls until the death of the high priest. But if they were guilty, then they would hand them over to the manslayer, and the manslayer would be the first to kill them. Can you imagine how our, how our, our society would be different if 
I'm not promoting or proposing that we go back to that, but I, I think it would be a pretty good deterrent. Because nowadays, um, you can kill somebody, and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have the death penalty. Many states don't have the death penalty. And while that doesn't sound very godly, I will submit to you that without these kinds of things, what happens is we become, our, our, our society becomes soft, and then there's no deterrent. And when there's no deterrent for things, it starts to unravel very quickly. I think I showed you a, a picture a few Sundays ago about the new law that they passed in the first of the year out in California, where it was uh, for the first through third grade, um, kids in California can't be expelled from school. So they can come to school, and they can be little rascals, and they can say all kinds of nasty things. They can spit spitballs at the teacher. They can be disrespectful. They can do whatever they want. They cannot be uh, suspended from school. And this year, they extended it to sixth grade. Or is it fifth grade? And so now you got a couple more grades, and it's just like... Where, what are these people thinking? You know, th- there has to be a deterrent. And so God here is making the t- deterrent pretty strong. And, um, and again, thank God we live in an age of grace. But I love what Micah said. In Micah chapter 6, verse 6, he says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, a calves, with calves a year old? <coughs> Excuse me, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here's the verse, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And see, that's God's heart. It's always his heart, and I love that about the Lord. Love that about him. So let's get into verse 1. These nine verses will go by pretty quickly. It says, The Lord spoke to Joshua. And again, this is going to be reviewed because we've already looked at Numbers 35, verses 9 through 34. So this is just going to be recapping. So the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Now, remember, now they've already crossed over into the promised land, and now they've got all the land is partitioned out, and they're in a, in a time of rest. Now it's time to get these things in order, to get these other three cities on the western side, to get those established, because the other three, Golan and Ramoth, Gilead and Bezir, those have already been taken care of before they even crossed over. And now that they've crossed over, three more. So God says, speak to the children. God says to Joshua, speak to the children of Israel, verse 2, saying, appoint for yourselves cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall, be, they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of these cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And remember, it's at the gates of the city when most business would be done. It's at the gates of the city in these times that uh, justice would be done, a lot of business would be done right outside the city gate. That's where it would all happen. And so the verse 5, it says, Then, excuse me, <clears throat> Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, 
they shall not deliver. Now, this is assuming he's not guilty, right? They, they've already made their investigation, and they found out he really did. Uh, it was unintentional. Then, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, but did not hate him beforehand. Now, this word avenger of blood, I would encourage you to underline it, because this is significant, because in the, in the Hebrew, this word means goel, or geel, and you know this from the book of Ruth. The kinsman redeemer, that's what this is. The avenger of blood is the kinsman redeemer. This is uh, someone who is um, uh, the next male in, uh, in age, uh, the, the eldest male. And he would be the, the avenger of blood. He would be called a goel. And um, he had four different roles in his life. Uh, the first one is if he, uh, say, uh, two brothers... Uh, had two wives, and one of the brothers died without um, having children. The older brother would go in unto his wife and raise up uh, children in his brother's name. And so that would be one of the acts or one of the things that a goel would do, a kinsman redeemer. And another one would to would be to uh, redeem him from slavery. Um, if he owed a debt and uh, he paid the debt himself, instead of letting his brother be a slave, he could redeem him instead. Another thing that he could do is to redeem land and also to exact vengeance. And that's really what an avenger of blood is. So if someone were to kill me, my brother would be the avenger of blood. And the person who killed me intentionally better look out because my brother's a nasty guy. I mean, he's not a nasty guy, but he's, he's very skilled, let me just say that. So if somebody killed me, my brother uh, would probably go after them, uh, but probably do it. You know, never mind. So I'll have to edit that tape. Huh? Uh, but the avenger of blood is the Goel, and this was a family protector. He was the near kinsman. That's what, his, that's what he did. And you see this term in the book of Ruth, um, over 10 times, like 12, 15 times, something like that. You see this avenger of blood or the, the kinsman redeemer. So that's who this is. So going on to verse 5, he says, Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, but did not hate him beforehand. And again, we've established that this is involuntary manslaughter. And, and notice uh, that the Lord gave us good examples. And these kind of things happen, don't they? Involuntary manslaughter. We see it on the news all the time. It amazes me. I don't know what it is about Florida, but when we were in Florida, we turn on the news and it's just like, I can't believe how many people are killing each other in Florida. I don't know what, is it the heat? Is it making them mad? I don't know what it is. Maybe the sunshine on the head is just caught baking the brain. I don't know what it is, but there just seems to be a lot of crime done in Southwest Florida and it's just happening a lot. But anyway, we'll go on to verse six. He says, and he shall dwell in that city in, in the, one of these re- cities of refuge, before the congregation, uh, be, until he stands before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of one who is high priest in those days. And then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house, after the high priest dies, of course, to the city which he fled. And, you know, the Lord knows the nature of man, and he makes provision again for these cities to allow justice, justice to be done rightly, right? To be done rightly. So if there is a, a trial, there is a, a sentence, and that's important. Notice two things, that he had to stay in the city 
uh, until he stands before the congregation. So he had to go through a trial for judgment, and then he had to wait until the death of the high priest. If he was found not guilty, he still had to wait until the death of the high priest. And it's interesting to me that freedom can only come after the death of the high priest. And you think about who is our high priest? Jesus Christ. Our freedom came after the death of our high priest, Jesus Christ. It was after he died that really we became free. Isn't that what it says in John chapter 8? It says, if you abide in my word, Jesus said, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He shall make you free. And it goes on in in verse 36 of that same chapter, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. And so after the Son has died on the cross, our great high priest Jesus, we have now been made free. In fact, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Actually, you know what? Let's skip. Uh, you might, if you've got notes, just write the scripture reference down, but for the sake of time, we're going to go to the other passage. Write down Hebrews uh, 2, verses 14 through 18. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. But where we're going to go right now is actually Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 14. And we're going to continue on till chapter 5, verse 11. Let me read it to you. You can go there as well. But notice, don't believe what I tell you. And most of you know this already, but let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says, the writer of Hebrews says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So the author of Hebrews had no problem saying that Jesus is our high priest. He passed through the heavens. Remember when he ascended on high 40 days after his resurrection? Jesus, the Son of God. He says, Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, notice, yet without sin. And that's what a high priest does. He understands. He's not just some unfeeling guy who's in a role to just take care of these things. Jesus knew exactly what we went through, but without sin. There's the difference. Let us, verse 16, therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken, chapter 5, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And Jesus Christ is our high priest. Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself to to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, and here's God the Father in Psalm 2. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet, notice, Jesus, he learned obedience. Isn't it amazing that even in the flesh, 
He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And yet being perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. But notice, because of our transgressions, and here's how we can fit it into what we're looking at tonight in the cities of refuge. Because of our transgressions, our avenger of blood is who? Our avenger of blood. He's coming after us. Who is that that comes after us? Satan, right? Satan is the one who is always lying and always, um, he is the uh, accuser of the brethren, as it says in Revelation chapter 12. He is the father of lies. He is a murderer, Jesus said, from the beginning. He is our avenger of blood and he seeks to destroy us. And if he can't destroy us, he certainly wants to ruin your witness. He wants to ruin your life, even as a Christian. He can't take your salvation away, but he can certainly create circumstances because of the weakness of our flesh. He can create and set up things. Believe me, there is a a demon. Satan himself is very smart. Never think that he's some dumb angel. He is very smart. He's no match to Jesus, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. However, apart from Christ, we should never go toe-to-toe with him. He will outdo us every time apart from Christ. But in Christ, he's no match. But we ought not to uh, get haughty and stand up and start poking our finger in his chest. I would rather just let the Lord deal with him and I continue to worship my king. Amen? And so that's what we need to be doing because he's a murderer. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You, you guys, you Pharisees, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand the truth because there's no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of it. That's Jesus' recommendation or his commendation of Satan. But there is one who's studying you. You know, I look back at my life and I, I, I see how the devil has has been following me and looking for things, and believe me, he does. He's just waiting. He's very patient. He's been around for a long time. And it doesn't matter to him whether it takes 15 years, two months, two days, 20 years. It doesn't matter to him how long it takes. He just continues to feed the flesh and encourage the flesh. And before long, the spring is snapped and your life is messed up. Your wife leaves you because of some unrepentant sin in your life. Or maybe, wife, you, 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 you've, you've been using credit cards and you've been gambling on the side and the next thing you know, you're, you've gambled all the money away and your husband's wondering where it is. And the spring of the trap gets sprung and you find your life a mess. That's what Satan does. But I love what, there's a song that we used to sing, it's called The Name of the Lord, and it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Remember that? The righteous run into it. They are saved. Okay. Yes. He is our strong tower. He is our refuge. David knew this very well in Psalm 46. What did he say? I love this psalm. He says, God is our refuge in our strength. Notice, a very present help in trouble. Where do you go when you're in trouble? When you're running from the avenger of blood, Satan is coming after you. Where do you run? Is your refuge like these cities of refuge? Do you run to one of those cities? Well, we can run right into Christ. We don't need to go to a city anymore. We can run directly to him, and we do that spiritually. Obviously, you can't run into him, 
but you get on your knees and you get into his presence and you bow your head and your heart and you submit yourself to him. That's how we do it. That's how we run into him. We get on our face and we cry out to him and we cut everything out of our, out of our focus and we just get to business with him. That's how we run into him. And I would encourage you to do that often. Run to the Lord. Don't run to your friend. Friends are nice, but friends can only do so much. Let your friendship, certainly you can confide in one another, and certainly you can share deep thoughts and things. There's nothing wrong with that. But your first person you should go to when you are having an issue in your life is you run into Christ. You run to him first before anybody else, before you get on Twitter, before you update your Facebook, before you do any of that stuff. Go to him. In fact, forget about that other stuff. Just go directly to him. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, the first four verses are really wonderful. It says, Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So in David's life, this was a great day because he would, God was like a refuge for David. I mean, how many times did David go into those, those caves along the En Gedi and along the western side of the Dead Sea there? We're going to be going there in two weeks. And we're going to go to these places where David and his men, they, they hid. We're going to see some of these places. Keep us in prayer. There's a lot of things kind of going on over there, but it's going to be interesting. It's good. But we'll be safe. There's no, there's no issues. But, I, but look what David said. He said, the Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He is my deliverer. How many of us can say that with assurance? Verse 3, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, notice, and my refuge. Can you see the heart of David? And man, I, I, we need to reclaim that again. To let this prayer be our prayer. To say, Lord, you are my shield. You're the horn or you're the strength of my salvation. You're my savior. You're my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You have saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so I will be saved from my enemies. Isn't that the Lord's heart? Isn't that a good place to be? Who's going to touch you? Who can touch you? There's nobody who can touch you when you're in Christ. Your enemies will come after you. The avenger of blood will slander you. He will bring up things that you've done in the past and that you still have a trouble forgetting yourself. You may not forget a sin in your life that maybe you committed in the past. And you know what? We're human beings. We have a memory. And unfortunately, when we ask God to forgive us, he doesn't take the memory away. At least most of the time. I, I, does anybody, has it ever happened to anybody? It hasn't happened to me. I still remember. But he... He knows what he's doing. But you don't need to worry. You let him deal with those things. But when he's forgiven something, you're forgiven. And you have to, by faith, receive that forgiveness. But our flesh doesn't like it because we want to feel like we have something to do with it. We want to earn it somehow. And you dishonor Jesus when you try to do something in your flesh to make up for something that you've done that he's already forgiven you for. He said, child, I've, I've forgiven you for that act. Why are you trying so hard? Why are you trying so hard to earn my forgiveness? Don't you believe what the scripture said? But it's so easy, Lord. How can I just believe? It is that simple. 
And yet that's precisely why so many people trip over it. It's faith. Do you believe what God says or do you not? If you believe what he says, then you're set free. Even the guilt can go. But if you're going to hold on to those grave clothes, you're going to be a mess. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a mess. I want to forget those things in the past. Your flesh won't let you forget, and the devil certainly won't let you forget that. Have you ever had a really holy moment here at church? You're worshiping the Lord. It could be during communion. You're sitting here during a Bible study, a message, and some filthy thought from the past just floats by your head. Ever happened to anybody? It's happened to me while I've taught. Where'd that come from? The devil going, oh, going to ruin your train of thought. I'll do anything I can to get you off track. And he does that to you too. But don't you listen. He's a defeated foe. We're just waiting for the for it to catch up to him. He knows his days are short. Let's go on to verse 7. So they appointed Kedish in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains. And notice these three cities are on the west side of the Jordan. He mentions these first. And there's a reason for this, I believe. Uh, This is kind of interesting. But then he says, on the other side of the Jordan, verse 8. So now he's talking about on the east of the Jordan. He kind of goes in reverse order of how it really happened. On the east side, other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they, they assigned Bezir in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and, the, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. And so all these tribes are there. And um, I won't take any um, uh, claim for this, but I, I saw this by um, uh, Warren Wearsby. Uh, he recently passed away just uh, a couple months ago. And um, one of the things I thought was interesting, and this is kind of interesting because here in chapter 20, it references these, these cities of refuge in the opposite order in which they happen chronologically. You know, he speaks of the ones on the west first. You know, <laughs> he speaks of the ones on the west side. Um, he speaks of, uh, of the ones on the west, but these are the ones on, on the east side. Those are the ones that were first established. But he mentions these first, and then he mentions the others. And it's kind of puzzling, but it's, it's interesting because um, Warren Wiersbe laid out the, the definitions of these cities. Kedish means righteousness. Shechem means shoulder. Hebron is fellowship. Bezir means fortress or strong. Ramoth means heights. Golan means exile, and these names can be used to describe what sinners, what you and I experience when we flee by faith to Jesus. In fact, this is the, the phrase. You can incorporate all these names into a, into a paragraph. It says, first he gives them his righteousness, and they can never be accused again. There is no condemnation, Romans 8 verse 1. Like a shepherd, he carries them on his shoulders, and they enter into fellowship with him. He, Jesus, is their fortress, and they are safe, and they dwell in the heights, even though they are exiles, pilgrims, and strangers in this world. Pretty interesting. And it goes against the, the, the natural chronological order. And you know, everything, there, there's, a, there's something in this, and I think he probably hit on it right there. There's a reason for this. God is putting an order because he wants us to see it. As we look at these names and what they really mean, we can come away with the gospel even in these cities of refuge. 
we can see the gospel in them. So going on in verse 9, he says, These were the cities appointed to all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. And so let's get right into chapter 21. Verses 1 through 8, is, is, uh, this chapter is laid out really well, as most things in the Bible are. If you look at the organization of it, it's really clear. And let me give you what I mean. Draw a line after verse 8 here in your Bibles, because uh, verses 1 through 8 gives the outline of the cities, uh, the, the different tribes that they gave to the tribe of Levi. We know that the tribe of Levi was not to inherit any land, but all the different tribes, all the other 11 tribes, were to give cities to the Levites because their inheritance was God himself. Their inheritance was the ministry of the tabernacle. And that was their ministry. And so God gave them that ministry. And so they didn't have an inheritance, per se, like their other tribes. So the other tribes had to give up cities in each of their 12 locations. They had to give up certain cities for the Levites to dwell in. And this is really interesting, and let's just read to it. And then in verses 9 through 42, he specifically gives the specific names of the cities given by the other 11 tribes to the tribe of Levi. So here we have a fleshing out, really, from verses 9 through 42 of those cities. And then finally in verse 43 through 45, we see a record of God's promises being fulfilled. And so let's just read it. It says, Then the heads of the fathers of the house of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. So notice, the Levites now, after all this land has been partitioned out, the Levites come to Joshua, they come to Eleazar, and to the heads of the fathers of all the other tribes, and they say, Hey, what about us? You guys have gotten all your land and stuff, but Moses said that we are to have land, and so finally they figure this out. So in verse 2, and so they spoke to them in Shiloh. This is where the tabernacle was reared up for the first time in many years. They spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. And you can read about that in Joshua 14. You know, the, the Levites, again, they had no inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance, and there's plenty of scriptures uh, concerning that. The priesthood of the Lord, it was also their inheritance. And the offerings of the Lord made by fire, those were given to them as an inheritance. So they had a lot, but they still needed a place to live. They still needed a place for their, their, their cattle and their goats and, and sheep to, to grow and to eat. And so in verses 3 through 8, we see the cities that the, uh, of the families of the Levites that were given to them. And, and, there, and within the tribe of Levi, we have three different families within that tribe. Uh, the Kohathites, this is where Aaron and his sons came from. And then we have the Gershonites and the Merarites. And each of these different families had very specific roles in the tabernacle, in the service of God. Aaron and, and, and Moses, they had, and, and Aaron's son specifically of the high priest, they had a specific role. And then the rest of them, of the Kohathites, had a different role. The Gershonites had a different role. The Merarites had a different role. 
One would rear up the temple, one would set it up. They all had their ducks in order, in, in a sense. Whenever that tabernacle would go down, these three families knew exactly what to do. They were given specific things to do. So in verse 3, the, these other tribes are giving them cities to dwell in. So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance at the commandment of the Lord these cities and their common lands. Common land was just land around the city where they could have their, their livestock grow, uh, grazing. So now the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites, and the children of Aaron the priest, who were of the Levites, had 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Simeon, and from the tribe of Benjamin. Notice, 13 cities. And the rest of the children of Kohath had 10 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the children of Gershon had 13 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh and Bashan. Verse 7, the children of Merari, according to their families, had 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, and from the tribe of Zebulun. And then finally in these, um, so the total number of cities here is 48, including the six cities that we talked about in the previous chapter, those cities of refuge. So there's 42 cities plus the six, a total of 48 cities that were given to them. And so now we get into verse 9, and these are the specific cities. And let's just read through it, because there's really not a whole lot to say. And then there's something really interesting at the, at the end here. So they gave from the tribe of the children of Judah and from the tribe of the children of Simeon these cities which are designated by name, which were for the children of Aaron, one of the families of the Kohathites, who were of the children of Levi, for the lot was theirs first. And they gave them Kirjath Arba. Arba was the father of Anak. He was one of the uh, fathers uh, from the Nephilim, the, the fallen ones that we read about in Genesis 6. He was from that family of, of race of people. And so Arba, Kirjath Arba, is actually called Hebron in the mountains of Judah with the common land surrounding it. But the fields of the cities and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. And thus to the children of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron and its common land. Notice, a city of refuge for the slayer. Libna with its common land. Jatir and its common land. Eshtimoah with its common land. Holon with its common land. Debir with its common land. Ain with its common land, Judah with its common land, and Bashemesh with its common land, nine cities from these two tribes. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its common land, Geba with its common land, Anathoth with its common land, and Alman with its common land, four cities. And so all the cities of the children of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities with their common land. So what about the rest of the tribe of Kohath? Well, they're listed here in verse 20. So in the families of the children of Kohath, the Levites, the rest of the children of Kohath, even they had cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim. For they gave them Shechem with its common land in the mountains of Ephraim, a city of refuge for the slayer, Gezer with its common land, Kibzaim with its common land, and Beth Horon with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Dan, Etikah with its common land, Gibbethon with its common land, Ajalon, verse 24, and its common land, and Gath-Rimon with its common land, four cities. And from the half-tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its common land, and Gath-Rimon with its common land, two cities. And so finally, all the ten cities with their common lands were for the rest of the families of the children of Kohath. So now we got the children of Kohath out of the way. Now we get to this other tribe within, um, other family within the tribe of Levi, the Gershonites. So they were given uh, from, uh, from the other 
It says, also of the children of Gershon, of the family of the Levites, from the other half-tribe of Manasseh, they gave Golan and Bashan. And I'm really looking forward to the Golan. When we go to Israel, we go up uh, north of the, of the Sea of Galilee in Lake Hula, which when we were there, it wasn't really there anymore. It kind of dried up, but there used to be a city called Lake Hula. But you go up even further north and to the east, and we go up there on a, um, a military base, actually. And you can see right in front of you, the Mount Hermon, and then you can see Syria on your right, and you look straight off to your west, uh, northwest, and you see Lebanon, and you're literally right there at the precipice of all that land. It's really quite amazing. And so, looking forward to going up to the Golan there. It's a beautiful place. So, the Golan and Bashan, with its common land, a city of refuge, and, and Bay Eshtara with its common land, two cities. And from the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with its common land, Debarath with its common land, Jarmuth with its common land, and Enganim with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Asher, Mishael, or Mishael with its common lands, Abdon with its common land, Helkaf with its common land, and Rahab with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Naphtali, Kedesh in Galilee, which is where we're going to be, where we're going to stay our first four nights, five nights, is going to be up in the Galilee region. Kedesh in Galilee with its common land, and again, this is a, re- a city of refuge at that time. Hamath Dor with its common land, and Kartan with its common land, three cities. And finally, all the cities of the Gershonites, according to their families, were 13 cities with their common lands. You know, and this is kind of tough to go through because we're just reading a list of things. But again, this is a land deed. This is, this is important for them, and they have this record. And I love the fact that God is very clear about stuff. He doesn't leave anything up for chance. doesn't leave anything up for people to just figure out. He, he makes everything clear. It clears up a lot of problems, doesn't it, when somebody just comes and says, this is what's going to happen. And it clears up a lot of problems. And to the family of Merari, verse 34, the rest of the Levites from the tribe of Zebulun, Jokniam with its common land, Kartah with its common land, Dimna and its common land, and Naph... Nehalal with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Reuben, Bezir with its common land, Jahaz with its common land, Kedimoth with its common land, and Mephath with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Gad, Ramoth in Gilead with its common land. And again, it's a city of refuge. Mahanaim with its common land. Heshbon with its common land, and Jazir with its common land, four cities in all. Verse 40, so all the cities of the children of Merari, according to their families, the rest of the families of the Levites were by their lot twelve cities. And all the cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were forty-eight cities with their common lands. And every one of these cities had its common land surrounding it. Thus were all these cities." Now, this is really where it gets fun, because when you think about what God has done here is he's placed the, the, the Levites like salt and pepper in, this, in, the, in the whole state of Israel now, in the state of Canaan, this new land that they've got. He's kind of interspersed them in between all these tribes, and it's, it's kind of interesting because these brothers were for the worship of God. They, they were um, devoted to the law of God. They were devoted to the word of God and the commandments of God. And how important is it to have that light, have that salt amongst the children of Israel? It's very important. Very important. Jesus said in Matthew 4, he says, You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown down and trampled under the foot of men. He says, you are the light of the world. And that's exactly what God was doing by placing the Levites, who had no inheritance, he sprinkled them in among all the tribes to make sure that they were accountable for the things they were doing. Because remember, we know that they didn't drive out all the inhabitants that they were supposed to. There were still little pockets of things that they were supposed to take care of. And we know through history, and especially when we get into Judges chapter 1, they didn't do that. They did the big things, but they got lazy. They thought to themselves, well, let's just put these guys to work. And that's what they did. They became slaves, the, the Canaanites. Instead of getting rid of them altogether like God told them to do, they, they thought of a better plan, and that was to put them to work, make them slaves. But God sprinkled them in. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 49. We're going to close here in just a few seconds, but this is really important. Because as we read what we just read, a lot of names, a lot of places, why did he do this? Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. This is really interesting. This kind of puts all of this in perspective. You remember when Israel, before they left Egypt, Jacob, in his old age, he was there with his sons, and he was dying. And his 12 sons came up to him, and he, he blessed them. He had something to say, something to impart to them, some word of wisdom. Maybe it was correction, whatever it may have been. And, and, but what, what does he say to Simeon and Levi? Remember, Levi was a tribe that the Levites were a part of, right? Hence the name. But notice he said what he said to what Jacob said to Simeon and Levi just before his death. He said, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and let their wrath I'm sorry, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And here it is, underline this and cross-reference it to what we just read in Joshua 21. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That was their judgment. <coughs> but notice, Romans 8.28. What does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that all things work together for the good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, right? Now you may be wondering, what wicked thing did Levi and Simeon do? Because it sounds like, from what Jacob is saying here, these guys were instruments of cruelty. Well, what did they do? Do you remember what happened in Genesis 34? When there was a young man by the name of Shechem, and his father was the, the mayor of the city, basically, but Shechem was the young man, and he goes to, he sees Dinah, who was the, the 12, think about this, 12 boys, and they have a sister named Dinah. The 12 tribes, these boys, have a sister named Dinah. So Dinah goes out walking, and she comes across Shechem. Shechem his eyes bulged out of his head, got to have her. So he takes her, right? We don't know the full story about how it all happened, but he basically forced her, his way on her, physically. Then he goes to his father, Daddy, please, she's so wonderful. Please get her to me for wife. And so Hamor and Shechem, they come to, the, to Jacob and the, and the sons, you know, and then probably with some intrepidation, but they're wealthy, so they can just pay it off, right? So they come up to him. You know, um, my daughter, my son really would like your daughter, and, um, you know, we'll do whatever you guys want. Name the price. We'll give you whatever they want. And so the brothers go, no, this is what you do. 
need all of you guys, if, if we're going to be community with all of you, and you can have our sons and daughters, and we can have your sons and daughters, they can intermarry, everybody think can be simpatico. If this is going to happen, we, wanna, you want, we want you guys to be like us. So there has to be some cutting away of the flesh. If you guys all in this city get circumcised, we'll do it. We'll let you have our daughter or our sister for wife. So they said, great. So somehow these two men convinced the rest of the men in the city. They must have had a lot of influence. What, what kind of deal they threw in? Hey, listen, guys, after this is over with, I'll throw in a big steak dinner for this. It's only three days of pain, and then you're going to be fine after that. So they do. They go through the circumcision. They're all very sore. And while they're at their sorest, Levi and Simeon come in with swords and they kill all the men, including Hamor, the father, and Shechem, right? That is what Jacob is talking about. As a result of that, I am going to scatter you guys in Israel. I am going to divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's what he said on his deathbed. And we see that very thing happening here. And I love that because even the consequences of the sin of Levi and Simeon, it would actually turn out to be a blessing to the rest of the tribes. Can you see that? Because as now they are interspersed in between all of the children of Israel now, the, the, the morality is sprinkled in. Now they're like those lights on the Christmas tree. Do you follow the picture? Jesus said, you are the light of the world, right? We are the lights of the world. He is the light, but now we're lights too. We're to be witnesses, and that's exactly what the tribe of Levi, in spite of their error, in spite of their huge sin that they did, God says, I'm going to place you <coughs> in, interspersed around Canaan with the 12 tribes. Because you guys hold to the law. They didn't at that time, did they? But they were responsible for the offerings, the sacrifices, all the ordinances and all those things. They were supposed to do that. You know, what redemption? If you think of it, these guys deserved to die. And yet God, in his graciousness, says, you know, you messed up really bad. And it's sort of like Romans 8.28. You know, sometimes your worst mistakes, sometimes the things that you've done in the past can actually turn out... We should never assume that our mistakes are going to turn out that way, but God has the ability to take even the worst things in our life, our worst sins, our worst mistakes, and turn them around for our good. Maybe it's to minister to somebody else. Maybe you couldn't minister to that woman who's been beat by her husband, but now because you were a wife who's been beaten by your husband, now you can go and you can really talk with her and you understand where she's coming from. Maybe you've had an abortion in your past, and now there's a young teen girl in the church who finds herself pregnant for a moment of weakness, and now you're able to tell her, honey, don't do it. I can tell you that you do not want to go down that road. I know your family and everybody and your boyfriend is telling you to get an abortion, but I'm telling you, do not do it. Choose life. And even those mistakes can turn for the, for the better, and they can be instructive, and God can use them. And I believe he did that with the tribe. And so finally, the last three verses, and we'll finish. It says, notice, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they dwelt in it. And the Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. Notice, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, it, it really didn't all come to pass. 
Well, it did from God's perspective. Because remember, God told them that he was going to do certain things. And he followed his end of the deal. He got them into the promised land. He vanquished their enemies. Were they supposed to continue and finish the job? Yes, they were. Did they? No, they didn't. But is that God's fault? No, he was faithful to do his end of the deal. And now it was their responsibility to follow through with what he had commanded them to do. But from God's perspective, he, everything that he said to do, he did for them. Now it was up to them. He would give them the strength. He would give them the wisdom. But they had to physically do with it. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of those times in the Bible where it says, crucify, therefore, the deeds of your flesh. What do you mean, crucify the deeds of my flesh? I've been saved. I've been born again. All that stuff is, I'm a new creature in Christ, right? Yeah, you are, but you still have to crucify. You have to crucify them. You ever notice that? You have to crucify them. You have to put off. In fact, Paul says in several places in the New Testament, put off all these things. You, me, you, and he's telling the church, Colossae and everything, you put off these things, and then you have to put on something else. You have to put on the righteousness of Christ. But there is, for us, something we have to do. It's not just God does everything and I just sit back and eat ice cream. Sounds like a really good, good God, right? But God knows better. Because anything that's, anything that's hard, anything that's worth, that's really good, is worth fighting for. Anything that's really, really good is worth going through the knocks and the bumps. Any, anything that's worth anything is going to cost you something. Isn't it true? Parenting. Has anybody gone through parenting and has it been a breeze? If you really did it right, most of the time you were crying. If you did it right, most of the time you were having to discipline. If you were doing it right, most of the time you had to pull out the belt. Most of the time you had to pull away the device and lock it in the safe for three days. You had to do these things. But notice the encouragement that God gives. And, uh, and just uh, see the provision that he made. And the prophecy that was fulfilled in getting those Levites and all those places and the city of refuge and, and just how Jesus is our great high priest, sparing us our lives from the avenger of blood, the Satan who comes after us. He's the one who takes care of us. He's looking out for us so we can run to him for refuge. And that's what these two chapters are really all about. So we, we looked at the history of what happened to them and how it applies to us. How cool is that? Isn't that wonderful? Let's stand. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Bless us tonight as we go from this place and, and help us to enjoy the fellowship with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.